Loading. Artist. Audio. Insight. Otcast. Verb. Interview with artists working today. Otcast. Noun. Insights into the work and process. Hello, and welcome to Otcast. I'm your host, Philip J. Mellon. Loading. Artist. Audio. Insight. The interview begins with me asking Suzanne, what is the most experimental thing you've done to a work? I remember reading, um, I guess I had become a fan of Dubuffet, you know, because he loved the materiality of the paint so much. And I, I remember in this Dubuffet book, there was a sculpture um, that he had done with sticks, with, I guess, like branches. And he probably put mud and, uh, I don't know, other, maybe he, he must have had paper mache on there, actually, because uh, I got the idea from this that I wanted to start using paper mache. And so in oh, this wow. building where I lived in Toronto, there was this uh, company called Willow Art, I think, and they made chairs out of willow branches. And so I would go in the back of the building and collect these old willow branches, and I started to make these sculptures a la du buffet, where I stuck these branches together and started plastering um, paper mache on the branches. And I don't know. I think they were probably really bad, <laughs> really bad sculptures, um, and I never showed them to anybody. But um, I liked the, I don't know, I liked the idea, or maybe I just liked the look of the paper mache stuck on these branches because it would kind of collect in places, and then you'd get these holes that kind of went back into the spaces in between the branches. Yeah. And so what I started to do was, put paper mache in my paintings. Um, and I never thought about anything archival at the time. <laughs> I never thought whether these things were going to last, um, you know, a year, let alone 500 years. But it started to create these really interesting effects that were very um, kind of like, they look kind of like earth, like the earth. You know, they would create these, um, relief kind of areas where the paper mache would go back in space and then it would come out in space. So you get these kind of hills and valleys. And then in between the spaces or in between the places where I put the paper mache, you'd have these crevices and I would wad the paper mache up in these little balls and I would stick them down. Oh, wow. And eventually, I guess this kind of like I started to make more sense out of this process. I don't think it was particularly organized at the beginning, but I, I eventually started working by, I would, I would work on panel and I would create these entire surfaces of paper mache that I would paint on top of. And the paper mache surfaces were made of these little balls of paper mache that I would stick down. So it just ended up looking like these little golf balls kind of stuck on the <laughs> surface. And then I would start slathering paint all over them so it would stick in places. And then you'd have these holes that would go back into the surface. It was really, I'm trying to describe this, and I'm thinking this probably makes no sense at all. No, it does. Does it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. picture it in my head. Um, but they, they were in... They were incredibly monumental. These paintings were actually um, really big. Like the biggest one I made was uh, it was a triptych that was about eight and a half feet tall by fifteen feet long. Wow! And oh, it's paper mache technique. And it would take probably weeks of just sitting there and making these little paper mache balls and sticking them down and covering these entire surfaces. And then, you know, I started piling the paint onto that. They become really massive um, and really, you know, weighty. And, in fact, I think people were, I don't know if people were afraid to stand in front of them or if I, I, I remember being afraid of people standing in front of them. Because if it fell, 
you know, these things ended up weighing hundreds of pounds. I yeah, yeah. Move a painting. I always had to have people come and move my paintings for me. It, it really took on a life of its own. It was, you know, the, the more I, I hear myself talk about it, the more I think, yeah, that was kind of experimental. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was different. And it's and very different from the way I work right now. You know, the way I work, yeah. work right now is, is uh, there, are, there are messy bits, but on the whole, it's, I think, very clean looking. And those paintings were quite, uh, messy, you know, messy-ish, I would say. They, yeah. they were a very different aesthetic. Right, a little, a little more tactile. Yes. That's a good way yeah. of putting it. Yes, very tactile. So you ready for another question? I am, yes. Shoot. When creating a work, do you use any sketches or preliminary work in the process? Um, okay, so this is the question that relates to the uh, the technology question. Um, I don't. I don't use prelim- preliminary work. Um, but I do use sketches, and so what that means is that I don't sketch at the beginning or before a work. I sketch during. Uh, oh. And so what the the way the process goes is I I just dive straight into a painting, and you know I never know where it's going to go, and um, I think that that largely comes from. Um, you know, this very traditional way of making an abstract painting, I think. I mean, that's what my, my understanding is, at least the abstract expressionists. I don't think that, you know, de Kooning did a little drawing before he did a painting. Yeah. Um, and I, when I was in, in college, I think I kind of adapted these, um, what, I, what I think of as kind of macho ways of, of making art, like I thought... I thought and I thought other people thought that doing a drawing before a painting was kind of a sissy way of making a painting. (laughs) It's it's just so dogmatic. You know, it's like this is an okay way to make a painting and this is not an okay way to make a painting. And, uh, you know, I'm a teacher and uh, I teach a lot of introductory courses and I found that um, while most of my students don't do sketches before they paint, it would actually be a really good thing if they did. Yeah. So, you know, you can work out a lot of problems that way. But um, for me, you know, kind of going back to the paper mache stuff, process has been a very important part of my my work, the final product. For a very long time, I want the process of how those paintings were made uh, to remain evident in the final product. So, I think, especially probably in abstract painting, if you kind of try to work it all out beforehand, then a lot of that process gets eliminated because it's that yeah. struggle with trying to find the image that creates a lot of the, the happy accidents that end up making the painting really exciting in the end. So I don't want to work it all out beforehand, although it's yeah. really nice and comforting to know where the painting's going. Um, it would eliminate all of the things that make the painting magical. You know, and, and a lot of people ask me um, how I made my, my paintings, and I don't really like to talk about my process because I want that that magic of how the painting was made to remain a mystery. I really like the idea of people looking at my work and not knowing exactly how the images came to be. Yeah. Um, But what I do do is, um, so I'll start a painting and I'll work on it for a while. And then if I end up kind of hitting a dead end or getting stuck, then I'll go into, um, you know, onto my computer and I'll try, I'll use the computer to try different options of where I could take the painting um, to help me come up with um, either a next step or sometimes it could be a final solution. So that 
uh, or technology becomes kind of integrated into the process, um, but never beforehand. It never ends up getting planned beforehand. That I, I think, at least for me, I run into a problem when I try to just, well, I haven't tried, but just the idea of figuring out a composition and then just painting that composition. You know, I just, there's no, there's no point um, as far as I'm concerned, because as I said, you lose some of the magic of, you know, making the marks spontaneously or, or just what happens along the way of making a painting. Um, but I think in Photoshop for me, and um, I think it's true for a lot of people who work in Photoshop, the layers are the things that, uh, you know, make it so great because you can save a part of something and then, you know, so you've got this part of an image and then you could, you know, put a big X through it and then you could take that X away and you still have that image. So, you know, you can have this image and then try taking it, you know, in X direction and Y direction and, you know, any different place and then you can still have that thing. So that eliminates a certain amount of anxiety about destroying the painting, and then that frees me up to try a lot of different things. Yeah. And just, you know, I teach, as I said, I teach a lot of introductory courses, and and one of the probably the most important thing that I say to my students or that I teach my students is, you have to try as as hard as it is to let go of your anxiety about making a mistake because yeah. it's the anxiety that hampers the um, the feeling of confidence that you need in order to make um, you know beautiful gestural marks, for instance. You know you can't make a beautiful gestural image if you're feeling really tense. Yeah. So, you know, you have to try to get yourself in the mindset of not caring about what happens. But if it's a painting that you've been working on for several years, <laughs> like, it's just human nature, I think, to a certain extent. Yeah. But, you know, the computer allows me, you know, kind of a, a way around that problem. All right. How do you get yourself out of creative block? Um, I I remember at one point in my life when I was actually relatively very, very young, (laughs) I felt so lucky because I'd never had a creative block. And I felt like, oh, I know exactly what I want my work to be about. And, you know, everything is kind of very um, easy for me in terms of, knowing in what direction I want to take my work and then, you know, something happened in in my life. Um, I became ill and it really changed what I was able to do. I wasn't able to work on 15-foot paintings anymore and suddenly I was kind of faced with having to change very dramatically what I was doing. Um, and, and since then, I've actually had quite a few blocks, and they usually come from some life circumstance that changes um, what I'm able to do. Or, you know, maybe suddenly I don't have a studio anymore, and I have to yeah. figure out a way to continue to make art. You know, like there was a time when I was stuck in bed for, for a long period of time, and I couldn't even, you know, sit and paint, and I just had to pick up a, a pencil and, you know, stick it to this piece of paper and just start making marks. Um, but actually, I think the thing that is most like the specific, the most specific concrete thing that I can tell you that's been the most useful for me is, um, is painting still lifes. And when I was in college, my last year of college, uh, especially my last semester, uh, I just, painted still lifes and it was a very freeing thing for me because I'd spent a couple of years in college trying to make paintings that I thought were expected of me but that I didn't really necessarily want to make 
I was spending a lot of time thinking that I was supposed to be making a political painting or I was supposed to be saying something important. And and then my senior year, I, I became friends with um, a group of people who most of whom were in actually the illustration department, you know, in the, in the illustration department um, at RISD, I was uh, in college at RISD. It's, uh, in the illustration department, it was okay to paint from life, but it seemed yeah. to me, and I, I, I think I was totally wrong, but it seemed to me that it was not okay to just paint from life in the painting department. Yeah. And, you know, so I didn't. And then when I had the support of these other people who basically were saying, yeah, it's okay to just paint a bunch of apples, you know, I started painting still lifes and much to my surprise, my grades went way up when I started painting these little paintings of, of pears and oranges. Um, and I'm sure it's because they were sincere. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting to me that people can kind of sniff that out somehow when a painting is, is sincere and when it isn't sincere and, and somehow that sincerity alone can kind of turn a painter from being, you know, a B minus painter to an A painter. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's something that I really like to do. I, I really like painting objects. Um, I love painting the figure too, but I don't, you know, have as easy access to a figure. Um, and, and so, you know, there was a time a few years ago when I, I moved actually to this loft it was the first time in many, many years that I had a real studio, and I felt like, oh, my God, you know, now I have to start really doing something again. I have to start painting, and I didn't know what to paint, and so um, I just thought, you know, pick up whatever's in front of me and just paint what I know. And so, you know, I just started painting these objects that were from my daily life, and I'm just of the, the belief that you just have to keep making things. You have to find some way to make to make something. And as long as you're making something, then something else will happen. Yeah. And that's what happened. I was painting still lifes, and then one thing led to another, and, you know, now I'm doing what I'm doing. And it's because I just, you know, picked up some paint and had something that helped me to know what the image was going to be. So when did you fall in love with art? I feel like you became an artist. Um, I've been told that I always like to draw. I don't really remember. I don't have clear memories of drawing as a child up until um, I started school. And uh, what I do remember is that uh, when I was a, a child, uh, Living in, in Manhattan, I went to the Rudolf Steiner School. Uh, my parents sent me to the Rudolf Steiner School for kindergarten one and kindergarten two and first grade. And, um, you know, in, in Waldorf education, everything is creative. You know, I don't know how much you know, how much experience you've had with um, Waldorf education, but... Um, Everything that you do, whether it's art or whether it's math, there's some kind of creative, like, usually visual, let's say visually creative component. Um, yeah. I remember my math homework, you, you had to decorate everything. Everything had to have some kind of visual um, aspect to it, and I loved that. Um, my brother also went to the same school, to the Steiner School, and he hated it, you know, and it sounds like the kind of thing that everybody would love. Like, how could I yeah. not love that? Um, but, you know, he didn't take to it, and I really did. And um, I just, I loved, I loved making things, and I remember one of my favorite things to do was uh, this, teacher, um, you know, they had a different teacher for different subjects, and there was a teacher who taught what we called, uh, at the Steiner School, was called handwork, and handwork was essentially knitting. So, you know, you had all these little kids 
knitting scarves and, you know, whatever else. And there was just such a love of craft, like, and craftsmanship. And I, I'm sure that I took to it because I inherently am a visually creative person, but um, I think that this diner school really nurtured that in me. Yeah. Um, it helped me to become more um, um, kind of aware of that, and it, it helped to grow that in me. I, I wonder if I hadn't gone to a Steiner school, if that aspect of me would have been as uh, as strong as it became. Yeah. It sounds great. <laughs> now you talked about the computer a little bit, and my next question kind of deals with that. We'll see if uh, basically the part where do you feel like it, it hurts an artist at all, the computer or the Internet? This hasn't happened to me, but I have heard uh, from colleagues uh, as a teacher that uh, students don't know how to draw anymore. Yeah. You know, the uh, the computer certainly has taken over in areas like architecture and uh, fashion design. Um, you know, remember, I remember when I was in college, you know, being a, a graphic designer meant having to use an X-Acto knife and uh, yeah, yeah. no rubber cement, and now students don't know what those things are, um, or at least, you know, rubber cement is like this totally foreign thing. Um, you know, I don't know. I haven't had an experience with students where I feel like, oh, my God, you know, you don't know how to draw because you've been working on the computer. Uh, but I have heard uh, I have heard other other faculty members complain about that. Um, so, you know, and is that a problem? Um, you know, certainly as somebody who loves things that are made by hand, you know, I wouldn't like that very much. But, you know, things change and and these things change for a reason. You know, I guess using the computer is more efficient um, in these areas like architecture, like design. Um, you know, so one would think that then it's a good thing. Um, you know, if a student needs to know how to draw and they can't draw, then that's a problem. But um, yeah, yeah. if the computer is helping them to do what they need to do in a way that's more efficient, then, you know, that's good. Um, and then there's the whole other aspect of um, the computer as an artist, which is uh, what I heard uh, the artist with whom you, you spoke in your interviews uh, speak about, which is the uh, networking aspect of it and um, being able to access images. And as somebody who really needs to look at a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. It's been it's so incredibly useful for me. Um, you know, it's just amazing the amount of work with which you can familiarize yourself, um, you know, compared to when you had to go to a museum and uh, yeah. galleries. And then, you know, for people who don't live in big cities, of course, it's it's really, really useful that way. Um, and for networking, it's been great, uh, you know, doing this, uh, meeting people through Facebook, it's been incredible, and, and meeting people through Facebook and then meeting them in the real world. Yeah. You know, I was just talking to some people last week about how it's so strange how you can meet somebody on Facebook and then you meet them in the real world, and it's like, oh, I've known you for you know, a long time. Yeah, right, right. been actually in a room with this person. Um so that's good, but but there is one thing that concerns me, um, and and this has to do with with social networking, um, which is it seems to me like there has been a um, a trend toward kind of un uncensored. Um, excitement for everything that uh, artists put up on the internet. Yeah. And I think this is, this comes from the networking thing. It's like people feel like 
they want to be noticed. They want that person to like them back. You know, they they want to use this uh, medium for networking. And so, you know, if you give somebody's work the thumbs up, then you know they're going to like you. And I just noticed that there seems to be less um, kind of, I don't want to use the word criticism because people aren't using their critical faculties as much as they used to. There isn't the same kind of critical discourse about people's work as there was before Facebook. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's funny because, it, <laughs> yeah, I think, well, Facebook may have, um, they may have to put in a, a dislike button. I don't know that there is one, but, or or a, or a button that is. Like a ambivalent, like, an ambivalent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something like that where, it's just for, just for the artists so that we can, yeah. you know, we can use those things. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, I, I totally understand it. You know, it's like when you go to somebody's um, when you go to somebody's studio for the express purpose of a studio visit, then it is understood that you are going to be speaking about the work in a much fuller way, and that you know you can talk about, quote, problems in the work. You know, you can talk about difficult issues that, uh, you know, you're having or the artist is having with their work, and, and you can address those. And or, or But on the other hand, if you're invited to somebody's house for dinner and the work is there, you know, you're not going to start, you know, speaking critically about the work. And, yeah. You know, it's just, it's like a, it's an etiquette issue. And, yeah. and I completely understand why people wouldn't want to press the dislike button. You know, <laughs> you have to be very careful in the way you word anything critical about about work. You know, right? And there's a tone that you can't really pick up on. Yeah, uh, yeah that's yeah, that's an inherent problem with with uh, any kind of communication over the internet but yeah yeah you know I, I think it's just also this networking thing that people want to try to use Facebook as uh, a way of networking and I'm I'm just as guilty of this as anybody else um, you just can't speak critically about the work um, and I think sometimes there's a, a bit of a lack of of um, genuineness uh, because people see it as a way of, of networking. So you touched upon this a little bit, but I just wanted to ask you, uh, what feeds your work more? Would you say your other work, looking at other artists' work or something like life or other? Yeah, I, I, did, I did touch on that. And I would say unequivocally looking at other people's art, that that is yeah. so important to me. Um, seeing things that other people have done, it, it's, it sparks ideas for me. Yeah. There are people who are just able to kind of poof, come up with an idea out of nowhere, or at least it seems to come out of nowhere. I mean, obviously it's coming from somewhere, but it's not, maybe it's coming from their personal history, or maybe as, as you said in your question, maybe it's coming from life. But for me, it, it comes from looking. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. And you know, if I'm painting still life, it you know it'll come from looking at something in the world. Um, but in terms of the work that I feel most serious about, it's um, it's looking at other people's work. You know, more if I have to pick one thing, that's what it would be. Yeah. So how is how important is formal art training to an artist? Let's put it this way. I'm glad I went to art school. Yeah. Um, I have a student who uh, who is older, and she didn't go to art school, and she 
I think, feels very lacking that she didn't get to go to art school. Um, and she does really nice paintings. Um, you know, I think she's very dedicated and she's able to figure out a lot on her own. But um, I remember I said to my husband about a year ago, do you think that Ivy League schools or, say, the top art schools are really better than, you know, some unknown little college somewhere? Because yeah. I teach at Caldwell College in Caldwell, New Jersey, a school that probably most people have never heard of. And I also teach at Parsons. And I'm like, look, these people are getting the same education. How can you say that, you know, Parsons is a better school than Caldwell College? And he said this thing to me that, in retrospect, seems very obvious, but um, really made a lot of sense to me. He said, the best schools aren't the best schools because of the faculty. They're the best schools because they attract the best students. And I thought, so explains my experience at RISD, because I never felt like I learned anything from my teachers. And I have this idea that students now are learning a lot more from their teachers than I did when I was in school, um, because I think that there is more concrete that is taught now. But students still say, no, I don't learn anything from my teachers. So (laughs) that's not true. Um, But I learned so much from my friends. And it was this group of friends that I alluded to earlier um, when I was talking about uh, still life. they were so smart and so creative and intellectual and intellectually stimulating um, that it just it opens me up to so many different kinds of painting that I never would have taken seriously. Uh, different um, attitudes, uh, different ways of making art. Um, And the thing about being in school with other people is you're sharing these experiences. um, And I think that that's really important. Um, And to be around people who can... um, help you to grow in, in, in ways you wouldn't otherwise grow is really probably the most important thing. There are other really important things about art school. You know, I just getting to draw the figure day after day after day. Yeah. I'm a very big believer in working from life and working from the figure Um, And if I had it my way, I would have time to do both. I would love to have time to do representational work and abstract work um, and and do a lot of work from the figure. Um, So that's really important, too. Who are some of your favorite artists? Well, you know, (laughs) I like... um, representational painters and I like abstract painters. Um, When I was in graduate school, uh, I remember having this uh, critique with uh, my seminar group and my teacher came into my studio with the other students and I had all these postcards on the wall behind my my table where I had all my paints and uh, I'm trying to think. I remember I had this Degas, this this, um, reproduction of a Degas painting uh, this beautiful uh, painting that uh, is in the uh, the Gardner Museum in Boston, and uh, it's this little painting of a woman in black, and it's this rich, big black shape, um, and I just loved it for its formal qualities. And then I probably had some de Kooning painting next to it, and my teacher was like, "You can't do this." <laughs> He's like, "No, you can't." You can't like both of these things, essentially. He's like, look at you. You're an abstract painter, and you've got all these representational images on your wall. I think you really want to be a representational painter. I just thought, what bullshit. (laughs) Like, why am I not allowed to do this? 
Most decisions yeah. that you can and can't, you know, you can't like this because you're that kind of an artist. Like, it's so, it's so limiting. And and I also find actually that it's it's rare that I meet abstract painters that like representational work. So I don't know. Maybe there's something strange about me. But um, one of my favorite painters um, these days is uh, Frank Nietzsche, and he seems to not be particularly well known in this country, but I get the impression that he's a real rock star in Germany. Oh, okay. And uh, he just had a solo show at Leo Koenig, um, and I had never seen his work in real life. It's uh, it's it's, and I, I wonder how he makes his work. I imagine the computer probably enters into his process somehow at some point a little bit very technological looking um, and I finally got to see that the day before it closed um, but also uh, Neo Rauch I seem to like these German artists Neo Rauch is one of my favorite painters right now I think he's one of the best most skillful talented painters in the world he's amazing um, there are so many of my my friends, my contemporaries, my husband, you know, my husband is an amazing painter, Andrew Barron, and, and uh, one of my favorite painters. Um, I love uh, I love John Singer Sargent and, and Whistler. Um, you know, I love de Kooning. There was a time in my my uh, education where I emulated de Kooning. I spent like six months just trying to make de Kooning paintings and figure out, you know, how he how he did this. I felt like I needed some structure, like I couldn't just make an abstract painting. I needed some way of understanding how to enter into that, and de Kooning really did that for me. My next question is: Do you have an artist quote you'd like to share? Um, no, I don't. But I do have a quote by somebody else. <laughs> Okay. Um, I I looked, you know, I, I looked for an artist quote. Let me find it. Um, and I couldn't find anything that, that seems that, that felt just right to me. Uh, yeah. and, and part of that is because when I was uh, when I was younger, I really I had these these um, I really romanticized the abstract expressionists and uh, New York in the 1950s. And I, I read everything that I could about Pollock and de Kooning in that time. And I just, I gobbled it up. And, uh, and now I tend to think that, uh, I don't know, I, I guess I was very captivated by the personalities and I'm not really captivated by the personalities anymore. There are other things that I, I look to for inspiration in terms of, like, um, how to be in the world. Like, I think there was a time when I wanted to be an abstract expressionist. Now I don't want to be an abstract expressionist. I just kind of want to be me. Um, but I, I have I, – I love reading about psychology. I'm, yeah. I have a real love for psychology. And I have this, this quote, and it's – it's long. I'm, I'm going to try to not read all of it, um, but it's by um, Carl Rogers, uh, who, if any of your listeners don't know, is um, one of the founders of uh, humanist psychology. Um, and he says, um, there is in every organism at whatever level an underlying flow of movement toward constructive fulfillment of its inherent possibilities. There is a natural tendency toward complete development in man. The term that has most often been used for this is the actualizing tendency, and it's present in all living organisms. It is the foundation on which the person-centered approach is built, and the person-centered approach is his approach to psychology. And then he says, the actualizing tendencies, tendency can be thwarted, but it cannot be destroyed with destroying the organism. I remember that in my boyhood, the potato bin in which we stored our winter supply of potatoes was in the basement, several feet below a basement window. 
The conditions were unfavorable, but the potatoes would begin to sprout. Pale white, pale white I think it, he means to write, there's a typo here. Um, pale white sprouts, so unlikely the healthy green shoots they sent up when planted in the soil in the spring. But these sad, spindly sprouts would grow two to three feet in length as they reached toward the distant light of the window. Um, and then he goes on. Um, but that I, I always remember that picture in my mind of these potatoes in the cellar kind of reaching toward the light um, of the window. And I think that um, that's essentially what artists do. I think that, um, you know, artists, artists are lucky in that they have figured out a way to um, make meaning out of their life. You know, it, it amazes me that there are so many people in the world that never figure out what they really want to do, maybe yeah. who they even are. And um, I think it's really as difficult as it can be to be an artist, um, you know, just figuring out a way how to survive and do your art and have enough money. Um, and it can be difficult. I think that we're really lucky that we have a way to kind of make sense of our life and the world. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that for me, my, my painting has always been a way for me to learn about myself and figure out uh, who I am and how I want to be, what kind of a person I want to be and, and how to live in the world. Um, so, you know, that particular quote is uh, paints a picture in my mind that's very, um, it's, it's a good analogy for, uh, I think, at least for me, what it's like being an artist. Yeah. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. So my last question. Okay. Is can you use three to five words to describe your work? Oh, yeah. Oh, now it's three to five words. <laughs> I read three words, so, you know, I, I was thinking in very limited ways. Um it's interesting because I thought about, like, I was thinking about it, and I kept coming up with words like, um, I don't know, like, colorful and and precise and clean and, you know, things that described it uh, visually. And then yeah. I asked my husband, you know, what would, if you had to pick three words, what would you, what would you say? And he picked words that were very different, um, and one of the words that he chose uh was um it was refreshing oh wow during the over the course of this show so many people have said to me your work is so refreshing and so when he said that i thought that's so weird so many people have said that uh you know there seems to be a consensus that my work is refreshing and that's, that's great. great i love that i love that you can apply the word refreshing to my work so i would say <laughs> refreshing is one of the words uh, yeah. And he also chose the words hopeful um, and I think optimistic. And uh, and I thought it, it was interesting that he, he was thinking more in terms of the content of the work, uh, which, yeah. which is great. And, uh, and I agree with him that I think my work, I hope my work is refreshing and I think it is optimistic and I think it is hopeful. Um, I want you to be able to kind of look at one of my paintings and and feel like you can breathe a really good deep breath, you know. Yeah. yeah. To feel expansive, I think is a word that I would use. Um, so I think that that fulfills the three to five. Yeah, yeah, that's great. <laughs> maximum. <laughs> you mind if I say something? No, I would like you to say something. Okay, I um, I haven't rehearsed this. I just made a couple of notes, and but like through the interview, you made me think of, you know, when you when you spoke of the the potatoes reaching for the light. Mm -hmm. I feel like some of your paintings actually could be seen as a cross section of the earth. Mm -hmm. 
and those different levels and and the the trails or roads, if you will, that you the stripes that you paint uh-huh. are the plant life reaching for the for the light. Oh, how interesting! Yeah, and um, go ahead. Is that something? I mean, this idea of this cross section of the earth. I'm guessing that's something that you saw before we had the interview. Or is that something that you... Yeah, I, want, I, I wasn't quite sure how to introduce it. and but It just came to me now to describe it as a cross-section, but I just felt like it was different levels of the earth because like, you have oh, no. um, almost almost a, a diptych, but vertically. How interesting. Well, and that's also interesting because I've been working in diptych, triptych formats a lot for a long time. Yeah. Um, so it's true, some of, like, the blocks of color could almost be different panels stuck together. Right. Um, I love that. I love that you said that. I love that interpretation. Uh, oh, good. Because I am a, I'm a real believer, you know, just like, you know, referring back to this quote, that you can learn so much about yourself through making your work. And, and there was a time when I kind of had this big, big revelation uh, almost in a, in a moment, like it was this moment of um, um, kind of enlightenment where, you know, a, a lot became clear to me. And uh, I realized, oh, my God, you know, I've been painting about this, you know, for years, but I had never really seen my work that way. I never really understood that I was painting, uh, you know, about myself. Um, you know, I thought I was just making these kind of formal paintings and uh didn't realize how personal they were. Um, a lot of people say things like, you know, roads, that they look like roads or they look like uh, aerial views. Um, yeah. But what you're talking about is, is so, um, it's so insightful. <laughs> it really is. And, and it makes so much sense to me. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, just to see, I mean, they're animated because of that for me. Yeah. I see it that way. I mean, you know, because they're the stalks are are growing and and they bend and reach and 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 it's it's also very helpful to me because um, I had this gallery walkthrough with a friend of mine recently, and I um, I respect what this this friend has to say a lot. Um, yeah, he's, he's very articulate, and he's he he looks very hard and, and he understands things well and he said to me you know it looks great show looks great paintings look great after he said but you know I really think you can work on your titles a little bit and I said to him you know I, I agree with that um, I, titling is very difficult to me and I also I agree really important yeah um, but I've been thinking about, like, I think what he said was, I think your titles should should kind of open things up a little bit more. Um, and there was actually, at the end of that quote that I read you, there was something, um, it was a part that I didn't get to. There was a sentence that says, but under the most adverse circumstances, they, I guess he's talking about the potatoes, they were striving to become and I really like that little uh, yeah. phrase, striving to become. And I was thinking about That's retitling great. another, another uh, one of my paintings uh, that I want my, my paintings to, I, I mean, I want the titles to um, allude to, to just this thing that you're talking about that you see in, in my paintings. Uh, that, to me, is really what the content of the paintings is, you know, just that you're talking about seeing these roots or these these uh it's 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 a really beautiful thing i think and i wish i knew more about <coughs> like scientific experiments or biology labs or but as if and maybe there's a, a just a hint of it in high school but for me but like if you were to take drops of one thing in a in an eyedropper or what, whatever they'd be called in a scientific experiment and added the liquid to whatever was in the petri dish, then something would grow, like almost instantaneously, as if you would have put ink in water, and it and it does its, it it creates its own patterns as it enters and goes deeper. Wow, you know this interview, like never mind 
like putting the the interview on the internet or anything. It's all been worth it just for what you're saying. It really it 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 gives me a lot to think about just in terms of um, directing my work. You know where where I could direct it and how I could make what I'm thinking more clear, you know, how more pointed in that particular direction. That's just fantastic. I love that. (laughs) That's that's really good. I'm glad. (laughs) I I always try to have something to say, and it doesn't always go so well. (laughs) You know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to study their paintings two or three days in advance, and (laughs) I got nothing. What's wrong with me? (laughs) Yeah, it puts a lot of pressure on you. I, I this 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 didn't stem from anything. Well, it stems from your work, but like talking about whether it's the the roads or the trails or those kinds of things. And and I was trying to think about that in in the way it related to the background. To even call it a background, if you can, mm-hmm. it, it, the they really are etched within, mm-hmm. say what you would call the color field of the background, so to speak. But they seem to sophisticate the painting a little bit more. What do you mean? Well. It, they they just really give you something to watch like this like I said before they're so animated uh-huh. and the way that they cut through other things uh-huh. it's 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 not I don't know if I want to it's a bit of an offshoot but I feel like I want to call them heroic too wow I like talking to you <laughs> <laughs> and not just because you know yeah, I'm just giving you the like button. <laughs> but but you're you, you're bringing all of these these insights that no one's ever you know no one's ever made these connections or 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 seen the work in this particular way. It's really yeah. It would be great to see them in person because yeah. you know I'm just getting it from the digital. Yeah. Um, know. I don't know. Was there a question there? Not really. No, I just wanted. To, I just for some reason I like I have all I have. I have the word. Um, well, I, I said that the, the 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 trails or roads or whatever they're you know commonly called, they're not an interference or an obstacle, but they're etched into the composition. Oh. Well, and okay, sorry, go. No, that's fine. And I, I, I they're they're not merely decorative. Uh, and I wrote a couple of you know other words that, like embellished or gilded or they dignify or sophisticate the the painting as like sort of a. A final note to the whole process. Um, I don't know if this is addressed. This addresses what you're saying, but um, I am a re- I have a real love for um, you know, and probably this comes from my love of still life, figure ground relationships. I don't yeah, think yeah. I could ever make a painting that doesn't have some kind of a. Well, actually, I have, but at this point. On, I don't think that I'd want to make a painting that doesn't have a figure ground relationship. Like it's just not enough for me to do a color field painting. And yeah. I put things, you know, in this case lines. Excuse me. In um, in the paintings, I want there to be a lot of tension between what we call the figure, so the lines and the ground. And I want there to be a real shift where. It's something that I teach a lot in two-dimensional design. I don't know if you've ever heard of the uh, the word notan. Um, no. I had never heard it before either. It's some book that a couple people wrote in the 60s about, uh, they call it like notan, the dark light principle or something. And it's basically about like kind of figure ground reversal and a balance between figure and ground. And it comes from kind of, a Japanese um, philosophy of aesthetics, I think. Um, yeah. But just you know, when you when you can see the figure as the ground, or the, or the ground as the figure, if that makes sense. So sometimes I want the figure to look like it's on top of the ground. Sometimes I want it to look like it's yeah. on top yeah. of the figure. Sometimes I want them to look like they're on the same plane. And I love playing around with that. I, it's, right. Yeah. It's edges. I love edges. Yeah, that's very important. Yeah. yeah, I had one instructor in art school, Bruce Samuelson. He would always talk about edges. Yeah, you know, it just, he would just say edges, and you you had to <laughs> consider that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I I have this friend who uh, does these beautiful, beautiful um, 
very painterly abstract paintings. So there are lots of um, kind of lines and marks on a ground that is often not even touched by the, the brush. It's often just the unpainted uh, surface of the canvas. And I love that, but I could never paint that because I love edges too much. I love, yeah, I've got to get the ground in there. Right, right. That's that's cool because I, I was seeing them as, um, well, there's some of the, the masking that you do too, which you almost, it, it appears you reveal some of the, like, say, under, yeah. like to call it an underpainting, not traditionally. but Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's interesting great. too. It's another dimension. Yes, that's very important. I think uh, it wouldn't have that kind of flip-flop between positive and negative if I weren't revealing some of the layers underneath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's part of the process thing, you know, just seeing the history of the painting. I, I love that. You know, when I look at a painting, it's like an artist to whom I refer often uh, when I teach drawing as Giacometti, you know, and being able to oh, yeah. see all of the marks that he needed to make in order to get that one mark that yeah. is like the perfect mark. And to use that as an example to, so students can see not only will you never get that one mark right away that's the perfect mark but you don't want to get it right away you want to yeah, all of yeah. you know, this trail that you leave behind that shows people yeah. how you got there Th those are the beautiful moments in, in a work of art do you listen to music at all when you paint oh yeah that's a good question yeah i do i do and i say that and i feel guilty for saying i do but i do and the reason that i feel guilty is um I feel like music really, um, you know, it, 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 it changes your environment and it, it alters your perception, you know, and it, it changes your reality. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, you know, music is manipulative. It, it manipulates your emotions. You know, you can oh, wow. like shit and then you listen to a happy song and it makes you feel better or you could feel <laughs> happy and you listen to a depressing song and, you know, you feel sad. And so... I feel like, like I never play music in my in my classes when I teach. I don't yeah. want a. I don't want there to be a conflict. I would hate to have to listen to music that I don't like when I'm when I'm painting or drawing. So yeah. you know, if there's a student who wants to play heavy metal and half the class hates heavy metal, <laughs> how can those people create anything? And yeah, then there are teachers yeah. that play classical music because that's supposed to be, I guess, inoffensive to everybody. But that still that creates this mood of kind of, you know, the uh, the classical atelier or something like that. <laughs> but um, you know, music really it does it does change how you feel. But I think that my paintings, you know, maybe they reflect a little bit of. The, the kinds of music that I listen to, but that's important. You know, I, I tend to like, um, I like a lot of singer-songwriter music, but I also like a lot of uh, electronic music and a lot of dance music and a lot of, um, well, I used to like hip-hop. I don't like hip-hop so much anymore now that I've become an old person. But, <laughs> like, there was just a time when people would say to me, how could you listen to those lyrics? And I'd be like, I don't listen to the lyrics. I just listen to the music. And then at some point I started to realize, yeah, God, those lyrics are so offensive. But now I can't, I can't listen to a lot of that stuff anymore. Some of it I can. Some of it I can. Um, but, you know, the way that, the way that electronic music and, and hip-hop music, you know, cuts and pastes things together I think is very much like the way my edges relate to each other. You know, the way yeah. it's interrupted and then something kind of comes in very sharply. Um, and it's part of the, the fun of being in the studio. Whereas, yeah. You know, my husband and I work side by side and he doesn't like to listen to music. So when, that, when we're in the studio together, I wear headphones. And I, and I totally respect that and I understand that. Um, yeah. And in a way, I kind of wish that I didn't like listening to music, but I just love music too much. I just, it's a, it's a time, it's a time I get to listen to music. Yeah, it's great. Well, that, that's, that's a good point. Do you listen to is music that, when you? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and the funny thing is, is that um, it, they go so nicely together. 
because, like you said, that's when you're not doing anything for a number of hours and you can actually listen to music because sometimes if, if you don't, like I like to really listen to music, not just have it be in the background when I'm driving or something, you uh-huh. know, and to really, really, my cat just made a noise. <laughs> yeah, just to, um, uh, just really listen to it and take it all in. And sometimes I'll listen to music as prep for my painting. Like I'll listen to it for half an hour to an hour and to get me in a certain frame of mind so that when I paint, I'm already kind of sensitive and I'm already kind of, I have, you know, just melodies in my head. And I, I think it, sometimes it helps compose a painting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a very valid way of, it's a valid way of making art. And yeah, when you put it that way, it's like, yeah, that's a valid way of making art. And, uh, you know, it, my guilt about it just comes from these old habits of, you know, there's a right way and a wrong way of doing things. You know, there's, yeah, yeah. you know, some people love listening to, you know, the, the baseball game when they, when they paint. And, you know, <laughs> I, I couldn't do that, you know. I, no, I couldn't either, yeah. But, you know, I, I, yeah, I need something that's going to get me in a particular place in my head. Um where I want to be, yeah. but uh, yeah, I mean, whatever you know, whatever, whatever works. The the reason why I wanted to ask you that is because there's actually um, <coughs> actually a band that I like that um, if there was a an audible version of your paintings, I feel like this band kind of touches upon. Some of that for me. Does that make sense? I want to know who it is. Okay, it's Saxon, S A X O N, and Shore, just like the you know Shoreline. Now it's. Um, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, when I was younger, wasn't there some heavy metal band named Saxon? It could be. Uh, I know there is a band named Saxon, but I'm not sure what they do. I'm not familiar with them. <laughs> some heavy metal bands. Yeah, yeah. Because when I typed in. Uh, Saxon Shore on on um, Spotify. Do you know what Spotify yeah. is? Yeah, I have RDO. It's the same same gen. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, Saxon was one of the bands that came up as well as Saxon Shore. So. Wow. Yeah, it's great. And I read your statement on your website, and it's funny that you you know use these keywords, which I really like. You said sleek and forgiving, uh-huh. and then hard edged and gestural, uh-huh. and that just that's. That just made me think of Saxon Shore's music. Oh. Well, I am eager. I have errands to run, and I'm going to be listening to them as I run my errands. I hope you like it because it's it's instrumental, so it's not there's no words. Well, I I I love instrumental music. A lot of the music that I listen to is inter- instrumental, whether it's um, you know acoustic or whether it's electronic or, or you know dance music. But I love acoustic music. You know, yeah. for a long time. All I could listen to was acoustic music. I, I I feel like, I don't know, I was going to say, I feel like acoustic music uh, makes every, it's like the least manipulative of, of all the different kinds of music, and I don't know if that's true. Maybe it just puts me in a place in my head where it feels, it's, it's, it feels more real than yeah. kinds of music. Like, it's got less of an attitude. Maybe that's what. Yeah, maybe it's the difference between pop music and and say a little more singer songwriter. I think I think you said. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I really don't. I'll take a singer songwriter any day. Yeah. <laughs> but Saxon Shore is is gonna. I don't want to surprise you too much, but it's very cool and it's it's very electric. And I maybe I'll just leave it at that and let you discover it. Thank you so much. Oh no problem. I love that. I, I, yeah, I didn't realize this was going to be, you know, a studio visit of sorts where you're, you know, feeding me all of this good stuff. Past year, two years maybe, I started to um, have more studio visits and really develop a network of, of people with whom I can exchange studio visits. And, and it's, I mean, that's time consuming, but oh my God, it's so helpful. It's just oh, so yeah, important. Yeah. It's like what I was saying about school. Like you just need to 
you need to have these conversations with people and you need to see what they're doing and talk about what they're doing and you're doing. And it's, it really feeds my work anyway. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Good luck with the editing and oh, thank you. enjoy the rest of your day. So. Yes, you do. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye, Suzanne. Bye-bye. This has been Oddcast. Thank you from me, your host, Philip J. Mellon. Keep the dialogue going.